When she's not busy filming her latest TV series, Marta Dusseldorp finds that sailing across Sydney Harbor in her grandfather's wooden boat is one of her favorite things to do. It's the most spectacular with the water glistening and the Opera House, which I think is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And then you sail under the Harbour Bridge and then you can go all the way back out to the heads. Coming up, the star of A Place to Call Home tells us what she loves best about her home in Australia. A jet pilot explains the strange feeling of place lag you might get when you land on another continent. All of a sudden you land and you walk out of the terminal and you're suddenly in this whole other world that was going on and would be going on if you haven't come there. And friends from Germany explain their love of sausages. We eat sausage for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, any time, every time of day, all year long. Get an appetite for exploring the world in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. They've just wrapped up this year's Oktoberfest celebrations in Bavaria. But in Germany, the love of a good sausage lasts all year. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, friends from Berlin tell us why sausages might be on the menu any time of day, any time of year, any place in Germany. And we'll meet one of Australia's best-loved actresses. Marta Dusseldorf is also starting to win the hearts of a growing fan base in America as the lead character in an addictive drama series set in the post-war years of 1950s Australia. A Place to Call Home depicts a time when people down under started to take a second look at themselves and what Australia was to become as a nation. Marta shares with us some of her favorite things about her hometown of Sydney and the Aussie getaways she enjoys, including places which still might look a lot like they did back in the 1950s. That's in just a bit. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with a return visit from a pilot. A pilot who's written poetically about the marvel of modern aviation. Mark Van Honecker's book is called Skyfaring, and he joins us now for a view from the pilot seat. Mark, welcome back. I'm happy to be here, Rick. Do you have to be smart to fly a 747? Well, there's a pretty rigorous um, assessment process. You know, it starts with a whole series of tests, and of course, we're we're tested on, you know, every six months we're in the simulator. These these amazing full motion simulators, which are, you know, not much less expensive than an airplane in some cases. And so, there's definitely a, a huge amount of training, and obviously, there's qualifications which are required. and And I don't think there are many professions that have that much uh, recurring uh, examinations and, and training. What's the most demanding thing for you intellectually about flying? I was really amazed by a system called inertial navigation, which is kind of what existed before GPS. And in some ways, it's cooler than GPS because GPS requires the ability to see, you know, have a line of sight to the satellites, Mm -hmm. whereas inertial navigation just knows. It doesn't need to look at anything. (laughs) Um, And it has these great terms like transport rate and coasting and gravitational vectors and earth frame and harmonic expansions. And it was pretty rigorous stuff, but there's a certain poetry to those words as well. And and, uh, I was glad to be able to learn them. Are there lounges where you ever find yourself in a social group with six or eight other pilots? And if so, what do you talk about? Well, uh, inevitably, we talk about airplanes, <laughs> um, but we also, you know, we also talk about uh, about our interests. You know, if, if we're on a on a long stay somewhere, sometimes one of my big things that I like to do is get out of town a little bit. Maybe go to, you know, we fly to the biggest cities in the world, of course. But I always like to get out if there's a village nearby that you can get you by train. Yeah. From reading your book, I got the sense that there's a sort of a pride. You are a 747 guy. You used to fly an Airbus, and now you fly a 747. 
Well, I, I, I loved my years on the Airbus, but the 747 was the plane that captured my imagination when I was a kid. Like when I was a five-year-old or six-year-old or seven-year-old, that was the plane that you know, represented to me everything that airliners make possible in terms of being able to move around the planet in a way that previous generations were unable. So I was super keen to be able to fly the 747. One of my colleagues who's a pilot and a friend, she she actually didn't want to be a pilot. She wanted to be a 747 pilot. Like, even as a kid, she knew that that she wanted to specifically fly this plane, and now she does. But of course, there's lots of amazing new planes now. Um, the 787 is absolutely beautiful airliner. We're about to get these a new version called the 787-9. It is a beautiful, beautiful airplane, and I hope to fly it someday, at least as a passenger and maybe as a pilot as well. Uh, I did go up to the cockpit of it once uh, when it was parked at the gate, and it looks like the Starship Enterprise up there. It is, uh, it is the future. And of course, at British Airways, we've also got the A380s, the Super Jumbos. Yeah. And they look amazing. They're you know carving out new routes and changing the way people travel, just like the 747 did. Mark, in your assessment, at what point do airplanes get too big? I mean, I would think some people would think this new plane that makes the 747 feel relatively small is on the border of just too big. You know, obviously there's economic decisions which are made by, by the designers when they do that. One of the aspects that's more challenging for us on a larger airplane is, uh, you know, we have 14 crew or 17 crew, sometimes 18 crew on a 747. Hmm. So just in terms of, of putting names to faces, it can be, uh, it definitely can challenge your, uh, your yeah. memory after a 12-hour flight. Whereas on the Airbus, when I flew the Airbus or on short-haul flights around Europe, we often had two or three or four crew on board. And it was, it was in some ways easier to be social because it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was a smaller group of people. Mark Van Honecker gave up a career in business to make his childhood dream come true, and that was to become a 747 pilot. He's written Skyfaring, a journey with a pilot, to restore, as he puts it, our capacity to be amazed by the human experience of flight. You can listen to our earlier interview with Mark in the Travel with Rick Steves archives on our website. He's in the middle of program number 426. That's from December of 2015. Mark's website is skyfaring.com. Mark, a big part of your world is just airports. Uh, can you learn about another culture just from its airport? Yeah, I mean, you do get a sense of, of cities from their airports. Um, in San Francisco, there's, you know, there's uh, some famously good food available in the terminal there. In Vancouver, which is one of my favorite airports, you know, San Francisco is a bit of a foodie town, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In Vancouver, there's all these water features. There's, you know, fountains and, and pools and aquariums. And, and it sort of suggests the... You know, I mean, it's basically in a rainforest, but it's also the sort of relaxed vibe that I somehow associate with with the city as well. Heathrow, the airport I'm based at, at Terminal 5, is just an amazing airport. There's these floor-to-ceiling windows, multi-story windows that really connect you with the air show going on all around you. And I love Terminal to me, 5. That, That's a great terminal. Oh, it's beautiful. And it feels like this hub. You know, you have these huge windows and the planes are passing all the time, taxiing back and forth. And you see so many people taking selfies now where they're they're taking their selfies, and in the background is the plane that's about to take them across the world, and it, it feels like the center of the world to me, and it, it is the center of the world. It's, you can go pretty much anywhere from those terminal buildings. In your book, you talk about how, on average, you fly to two new airports for the first time a year or so. Is it stressful to come into an airport for the first time, or is it also automated and everything that it's pretty standard? No, I, it's not stressful. We do have briefing materials, so we haven't often have uh, video materials we look at. We have, of course, our charts. And, of course, we've been to most of these places in the simulator already. And the simulator, of course, is essentially a flawless rendition of, of the cockpit and of the outside world. Really? So you could land in Hong Kong, as far as you would know, 
for real, and it would just have been a simulator experience. Yeah, I mean, it, the simulators are essentially perfect, and they, they've been designed to be that way. In fact, the, what's jarring in the simulator is when you're suddenly aware that it's a simulator when because you can suddenly back up or, or you <laughs> yes. or you can jump hit pause yeah you can hit pause in hong kong and then say okay now we'll do an approach in accra and you're suddenly you're on the other side of the world okay of, of all the um, airports you could program on your simulator which one would you want to do several times because it's more challenging than the rest because i remember hong kong the old airport in hong kong used to be a pier that went right out into the water and you banked around the city and it just seemed frightening every time i landed there and now they've got a bigger airport i think I would pick my airport that way by the views, actually. I think uh, Cape Town, you know, you're coming in over the ocean and you see Table Mountain and the sun is just coming up. It's one of my favorite airports, whether in simulator or in the real airplane. It's, uh, it's a very special place. Really? Airports are not more challenging than others. I mean, if it's an airport, it's, it's relatively straightforward if you know what you're doing. The way that they vary is, is essentially with the weather and, of course, uh, the, the proximity of hills and of other airports, that sort of thing. But, you know, the weather is, of course, the main thing. And if you're coming to Chicago in the winter, you're going to have a different mm. uh, weather experience than in Singapore in the summer. And so, of course, the weather is something we'll talk about in, in great detail before we depart. You know, thinking ahead as to what kind of conditions we'll expect to find when we get there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Van Honecker. His book is Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. It's so fun to be able to fly around the world and enjoy the, the travel dimension of it when you're a pilot. Are there any airports that, that uh, sort of mirror their societies as being just really different? Uh, you know, I can imagine flying into North Korea or something like this. What airports really strike you as from another planet, the way they're run and, and uh, the experience of landing there? Well, if we're thinking about places where the airport says something about the, the place that it serves... I guess the best answer to that for me was the time I flew to Honolulu as a passenger. And, I, you know, I'd never been to Hawaii before. And it was in the winter. I, I'd, I'd flown from Boston where it was, you know, icy and snowy. And the terminal there doesn't have walls. I mean, it, it's open air. And I thought, what an amazing thing that is that you could, you know, what does that say about this place that you can, you know, in the weather year round, that you could have a terminal that didn't have you know, windows that had, that was open to the that was open to the breeze, and it smelled amazing. You know, after the winter of Boston, you just you just smell the sea and, and you know, and salt and this warm breeze coming through. And I thought, wow, this is why people come to Hawaii. I remember in in Nepal flying out of a little town of Pokhara, and it was just a, a field, but we all sat outside waiting for the airplane. And I just thought, this is a whole different experience. Uh, Mark, when you're writing your book, you talked about place lag as opposed to jet lag. What do you mean by place lag? Well, place lag was the best term I could come up with for that sense of wonder and amazement, which is you know something well beyond culture shock when you travel across the world the way we can now in a long haul airliner. If you take off from Heathrow and you're flying to Tokyo and you know you fly over, you take off and the sun goes down and it's dark and you're you're flying over Russia for hours and hours and the sun comes up and you're looking out of the Sea of Japan. And, you know, you had the last meal you had on the ground was a sandwich at Heathrow or maybe a coffee at Paddington Station before you got on the train. And then all of a sudden you land and you're and you walk out of the terminal and you're suddenly in this in this whole other world that was going on and would be going on if you hadn't come there. And the sense that the whole world is going on at once and that you can planes can take you into these moments that you, you know, that would be absolutely bewildering to our, you know, our not very distant ancestors. To me, it's. It's very analogous to jet lag because it's almost like a. it would have been easier to make those journeys conceptually if it took us six months by sea, uh, you know, 150 years ago. And now we can do it so quickly that, that maybe our, our sense of place uh, lags behind. And, 
And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it reminds us of how amazing it is to travel and how amazing the machines are that make it possible. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mark Van Honecker. His book is Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. You talked about waking up a plane, and it was as cold and, and dead as a car buried in snow. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing. We don't actually do it on the 747 very often. It was it was more something that happened on the Airbus where we would be the first ones to the plane in the morning. So you just open the door and you and the, the seats are cold and you kind of dust things off. You open off the door and, and it's dark and and you walk up to the cockpit with your flashlight and you uh, and you start <laughs> flipping the switches and then 40 minutes later you're you're at 30,000 feet. It's it's an amazing feeling. Oh my goodness. Well, you've written a beautiful book and thanks for joining us. We've been talking with Mark Van Honecker. His book is Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. Happy travels, Mark. Oh, thank you, Rick. See you on board. We hope you enjoy your flight. Thank you. Mark Van Honecker tells us what it's like to pilot a plane blindly through the clouds. You can hear that as an extra with this week's show. It's posted in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look at how sausages are an easy way to make any meal into an occasion in Germany. That's a little later in the hour. Up next, I want you to meet one of today's top actors from Australia. Marta Dusseldorf is gaining international recognition for her roles in a number of TV series. One of these is set in a farming town in Australia 60-some years ago, and it's quickly becoming a hit all around the world. The star of A Place to Call Home tells us what she loves most about the place she calls home in Sydney. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Audiences in the United States are beginning to recognize what Australians have known for years. That actress, Marta Dusseldorp, is a delight to watch, both on stage and on screen. She also seems to be one of Australia's busiest actors. Right now, she's starring in three newly released TV drama series. She plays the title role of a high-powered attorney in two seasons of Janet King, and she has a leading role in the Jack Irish detective shows. But starring in the lavish drama series A Place to Call Home is what's building her international following. The series is set in rural Australia in the volatile post-war 1950s. The episodes explore the era's evolving issues of national identity and prejudices. Marta's character, Nurse Sarah Adams, returns home to Australia from Europe after surviving the horrors of a Nazi prison camp. We caught up with Marta in between filming dates at the ABC studios in Sydney to find out more about her role in A Place to Call Home and also what she enjoys most about Australia today. Marta, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on your success. I understand A Place to Call Home is a huge hit in Australia, and now it's getting more and more uh, airtime on public television in the United States. Absolutely. It's got a huge fan base over in America. There's all sorts of Facebook pages and Twitter and followers, and um, the fans have had a huge influence, actually, in making this show continue, certainly in this country. But I found out yesterday it's sold to 120 countries around the world. A place to call home. And it, it really gives us a look at, at 1950s Australia. You know, we've in the United States, we're coming off this... Uh, frenzy about Downton Abbey, which takes us intimately into the fascinating world of English aristocracy a century ago, your series takes us to Australia in the, in the age we think of as Eisenhower and Leave it to Beaver, and sort of a, we have a nostalgic, simplistic look at the 1950s, but sort of peeling back the layers. Uh, tell us about Australia in the 1950s. Well, it was post-war for us, that's how we define it. So there was a depression, um, people were returning or not, so there was a lot of loss. 
a lot of shrapnel, emotional shrapnel in people's psyches. A lot of the men uh, disappeared and so the women had sort of taken over, found a better place for themselves in society and community in the workplace. And it was a time of reconnecting to cultural identity, I suppose. There wasn't a lot of frivolity and uh, celebration necessarily, even though it was a seeming success um, because the loss for Australians was so great. So the show starts with a woman returning from overseas, my character, Sarah Adams, having been away from home for a long time. And she had fought in the war and been a Holocaust survivor. And that's all explained in the show as to how that could have possibly happened for her. And she meets this very well-to-do family on the ship on the way back and accidentally falls madly in love with the um, the son who who, uh, of course, it's not the right match and should never be. And so a war begins outside the war, which is Mm. between this family and this woman. It's really a look at where we've been and how far we've come. But what I love about this show and Bevan Lee, the creator, what he's done, he's set it as a melodrama and he talks about um, the Cirque films. So he's referencing a particular genre. And so it's quite heightened but it's it's about a deep underlying um, prejudice and racism and homophobia and um, those sorts of taboo subjects that we haven't really explored on Australian television necessarily before. It is interesting that we can look at these hard issues and we've got the same challenges in the United States and it sort of disarms us to, to go back to the 50s and, and look at mm. it, how, how it was dealt with in that time and then to sort of be haunted by the fact that we're still struggling with it today. Talk for a minute, Marta, about the whole idea of the adjustment for a society where women all of a sudden are going to be more respected and and at the same time expect more in the 50s. I had that sense when I saw you, even when you were sailing from uh, Britain back to Australia after the war in in a place to call home, the sense was you were going to march right in there and (laughs) this is a new age and women are going to be respected. Well, Australia had always been very family-based women in the kitchen, men out to work. It really had been that way for a very, very long time. And as I say, most of the men left. So the women had to fill those roles. They were pushed out of the kitchen and into the workforce. The thing about Sarah is she comes with also Europe and surviving uh, Ravensbruch was where she was incarcerated for over three years. She's a nurse by trade and had continued after her repatriation to be a nurse in London and here's a woman who who really doesn't need to be the centre of attention, and yet her actions keep putting her in the spotlight because <laughs> she is selfless, but she she marches for the greater good. And so I really enjoyed playing that and ruffling all these feathers, of course, which are in the hats of these amazing costumes in the 1950s. And there's a lot of fun to be had out of it too. It sounds very depressing, But actually, there's a lot of joy in watching that happen as someone breaks down the wall, so to speak, on screen at a time when you can't pick up a mobile phone or send a text. You have to arrive and actually have a conversation, which usually means a cup of tea and some Anzac biscuits, which are one of our nation's greatest biscuits um, made from the drippings of um, oats and maple syrup back in the day. So, I mean, certainly when I shoot it, I can smell my grandmother and I can hear her voice and I can hear the radio and I remember the leftover of that time, the kind of last vestige of that. 
And certainly it, it talks to a lot of Australians um, and internationally as well, a bit like Downton Abbey, because it is, it's a full absorption in another place and it's like a different world. Um, it's like travelling. When I travel to Japan, I go, this is like being on another planet. I love it so much because it's so different and so completely other. And that's what this show really is. And it's just beautifully written and deliciously filmed mm. and, and wonderful acting. Uh, do you think that a lot of us, it's a hit in Australia in part because Australians are just nostalgic about the 50s? Or does it um, challenge them to see where they are today and, and, and where they need to go? I think both those things. And I think actually what's so unique about this show is that three generations sit down to watch it together. Mm -hmm. And that old-fashioned thing of sitting around the fire, then sitting around the radio, then sitting around the television has been returned to families. A lot of people talk about that, how they all sit down together because everyone can watch it and everyone can relate to it. There's, there's three generations of women and men playing out their lives. So there's something to recognize for everyone. What a delight for the older generation mm. to sit down with their grandchildren exactly. and because this can verbalize or, or, or help them visualize this reality. And it also artfully deals with a lot of the dark side of a of sort of a sweet, superficial world that really need to be dealt with thoughtfully. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marta Dusseldorp. She plays Sarah Adams in A Place to Call Home, big hit in Australia, and it's coming to the United States on public television, and you can watch it streaming on Acorn Media. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Sid's calling from Atlanta in Georgia. Sid, thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you have a comment or a thought about uh, A Place to Call Home or Australia in the 50s for Marta? First, I want to say how uh, much my family is enjoying her nuanced uh, performance in A Place to Call Home. It, it is one of our favorites. And um, as a Southern uh, American uh, in, in the southeastern part of, of our country, I can't help but be, be struck by how beautiful the country is and how the, the rolling hills are, are, are part of the landscape and and certainly part of the enjoyment one has seeing these actors. Um, I'm also just, as a Southerner, interested in Marta's reaction to how an American traveler to Australia should engage in the Aboriginal history, which is so so much a foundation of the country. Thanks, Sid. Um the way to come to Australia to engage with the Indigenous community is to search those communities out. And one of the places to do that, of course, is in the Red Centre. Uh, if you go to a place called Uluru, which in the old days was called Ayers Rock, um, but has been renamed its Aboriginal name, certainly there you can visit communities and engage directly with them. And that's always the way to do it. You look for any kind of tourist organization that is run by those communities so that the money goes directly back to them and you are engaging with them in the way they want to be engaged with. Um, that's the most respectful and usually the most satisfying experiences I've ever had. Um, there's another place called Arnhem Land, which is a very spiritual place for the Aboriginals and is a heritage space, which is theirs alone. And you can organize ways to go in there, you play and see how they live and work and engage, and you can buy their artwork, which is absolutely incredible. 
And again, that money goes back into the community so that they can sustain their history, their culture, and their storytelling, which is very important to them. So, Marta, on our theme about uh, 1950s Australia and today's Australia, in 1950s Australia was more um, homogenous, and today it's, I think, more multicultural, I would imagine. How was the outlook in the 50s for the Aboriginals compared to today? What was the mindset of, of the white Australian? Uh, it was devastating. I think there was an extraordinary amount of racism and division. So in the 1950s, it was a complete, um, really sort of polar opposite to how it is today. There was a lot of, uh, everyone wanted it to be divided. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Aboriginal people. They wanted them to disappear almost. It was, and of course, there was a lot of things in place that sort of tried to help that to happen. Luckily, um, that didn't happen. And there has been a lot of apology and kind of a, a real sense of trying to give them back their dignity and their land rights um, minimally and education and health and finding a solution so that everyone can live together. The thing is, they don't want to live as we live. So that it's a really um, a difficult thing. It's an ongoing political um, yeah, it's just uh, are the, are it's the very, Ab- very Are the Aboriginals in Australia nomadic? They used to be. They used to That's a tough adjustment, walk, isn't it? Yeah, they used to walk their song lines, and so they walked across the country. Their mm-hmm. land, if you look at a map of Australia as divided in Ibri- Aboriginal language and culture, it's completely different to the states that are set out quite rigorously, obviously. So that all had to change because they weren't allowed to anymore. Mm. So um, it's a very painful, painful problem, and it's something that um, certain individuals have made huge headroads in in the Indigenous communities where they've come together and for their children are trying to make some kind of repatriation, trying to find some way to heal it and find uh, a compromise. But it is ongoing, and it's still ongoing today. It's pretty parallel to the uh, American uh, Native American uh, challenges. You know, I think it's the, the same sort of uh, scenario and an ongoing challenge. And we had a different outlook in the 50s, and we certainly have a different outlook today. Yes. We've still got a lot of work to do. Uh, to, exactly. cheer, to cheer things up a bit, when we think of Australians, we think of uh, shrimp on the barbie and beer and all sorts of uh, you know just crazy parties. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you party, <laughs> and how does an Australian have a good time back in the 50s when you're Sarah Adams on A Place to Call Home? I don't know. She had many parties. Um, she has a stiff drink with Roy on the veranda occasionally. A um, bit of home brew goes down. Um, so where did the shrimp on the barbie come from? I mean, was it, did that <laughs> exist back in the 50s? I don't know. Maybe on the coast. Um, I'm still suspect of a of a prawn. We call them a prawn or a shrimp inside Australia, within the centre of Australia. I think where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I only eat seafood when I'm on the coast, and certainly I have had Christmases because, of course, our Christmases are boiling hot, where it has just been a shrimp on the barbie and a nice glass of champagne and a salad. <laughs> And a salad. Oh, that sounds like <laughs> a little more refined than the Australian parties I've heard. Hey, Sid, you were down yes. in Australia. Well, how did you uh, connect with the people? How did you find the, the free-spirited Australian? So fun-loving. Um, we were lucky enough, first of all, to conquer the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, I, I wanted on my tombstone. I, I crossed the <laughs> Sydney Harbour Bridge. 
But we were lucky enough to uh, also go into the Hunter Valley for some wine and also the Blue Mountains where just just fabulous uh, hospitality and an appreciation for all things Australian and from the land. Um, altogether enjoyable experience. Nice. Hey, Sid, thanks for your call. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sid. Bye. One of Australia's favorite actors, Marta Dusseldorf, is sharing her favorite sights in her home country with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Marta's work on TV, in theater, and films has been drawing acclaim since the 1990s. She also serves as a Save the Children ambassador to Aboriginal communities in Australia. American audiences can now see her starring in the TV series A Place to Call Home and Janet King. Marta, of course, uh, a lot of us are dreaming of going to Australia, and uh, you live with your family. Where exactly do you live in Australia? I live right in the centre. I live in a place called Paddington, mm-hmm. which is between Centennial Park, uh, Bondi Beach, and the city. Now, that's in, in Sydney, you mean? In Sydney, yeah. Right. And I okay. can get to any of those places within minutes, so it's spectacular in that way. So what is Sydney like? Where do you go to enjoy a, a, a nice sunny afternoon on a Saturday with your with your daughters? Well, I'm very lucky in that my father is um, loves to sail. And when he was very young, his father built a boat here. They're both Dutch men, and they, a Dutch uh, boat maker came out. So he built a boat, mm. and my grandfather gave it to my dad when he was 18. So it's a very, very old wooden catch. 32 square footer. Mm, nice. And one of my favorite things to do is to go down onto that boat and go for a sail around the Sydney Harbour. It's really the reason I live here, so that I can do that and also go to the beach. It's the most spectacular with the water glistening and the Opera House, which I think is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And then you sail under the Harbour Bridge and then you can go all the way back out to the heads past Manly. Although when we do and the waves pick up, I'm the first to scream and say, turn it around. Turn it around. Um, But that is such a beautiful thing to do. That's a focus on the great outdoors, it sounds like. It's a beautiful thing to be about. Yeah, and there's not that many boats actually on Sydney Harbour unless something's happening. So Mm -hmm. sometimes you can be on there alone, which is kind of amazing, apart from the ferries bearing down on you, which... um, for visitors is, is is an absolute must to get on the ferries and go to the different places around the mm. waterfront. So that's a good, probably a good travel tip is just hop on those ferries and get out of the city and enjoy the, the Absolutely. And, the and you can, of course, depending on your budget, you can charter boats to do that or you can hop on mm. um, already tours that are happening. And the more simpler thing I love to do is to go to Centennial Park, which is this beautiful natural reserve right in the centre of Sydney, And it's huge, and you can walk for hours, you can feed black swans, and you can hire bikes and ride around there. So me and the kids often do that. They scooter, and I sort of walk quickly next to them. Um, And you can also horse ride there, which is another beautiful thing to do. Now, Sid was talking about walking over a bridge. What was that bridge, and exactly what happened there? The Harbour Bridge links the North Shore to the eastern side, And these days, I don't know if she, I was meant to ask her whether she walked over the top of it, which you can now do, or just um, along the the sort of bridge side of it. But they're making it more available to pedestrians? Oh, yeah, it's a huge business walking over the top of the Harbour Bridge. I've never done it. Um, I think because, you know, I see it every day. I tend to go, oh, yeah, 
There are those people up the top of the Harbour Bridge again. Mm. Um, but I've heard it's absolutely incredible. Sounds and, um, breathtaking. <laughs> I think it is. And I think better if there's a storm. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> there's more of Marta Dusseldorp's favourite places to call home in Australia in just a minute. And then get a taste of the sausages of Germany. We're at 877-333-RICK. Marta Dusseldorp's on the line with us from Sydney, Australia, for a look at her favorite places for a getaway in her home country. She's just finishing up filming the fourth season of the drama series A Place to Call Home, where she plays the lead role of Sarah Adams. Even though it was a top-rated drama on Australia's Seven Network, it was cancelled during its second season. But viewer demand convinced Foxtel Television to pick it up so the storyline continues in season three and four. It's now showing on a select number of public TV stations here in the USA. All seasons of A Place to Call Home, plus Marta's other drama series, are also available at Acorn TV. Erica is calling from Beaver Creek in Ohio. Erica, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. Hi, Marta. Um, Hi, Erica. I want to say you're you're making me reminisce about my trip from uh, January in 2015. I came over for the New Year's Eve fireworks and stayed for a glorious two weeks. Did not want to come home. And I did do <laughs> the bridge climb. So <laughs> T- Tell us about this bridge. And I, without being um, too obvious, New Year's Eve in Sydney, Australia, is the middle of the summer. So it's nice and hot and everybody's out on the beach. Climbing over the bridge, what's it like, Erica? Um, it was less strenuous than I was fearing. It takes literally three and a half hours from start to finish. It's extremely well organized. Um, you have a group of no more than 14, and um, they take you up. I think it's every half hour or hour. And you go along a certain way, and your tour guide will stop you, explain what you're looking at from your vantage point, give you some history of the city and of the bridge. You go along another little bit, you stop again, and uh, they take your photo at various points. And um, Are you actually roped? Are you roped up? Yes. Are <laughs> yes, you you're chained. You are, Okay, yeah, so this is like a Via yeah. Ferrata, one of those uh, cableways where you've got the uh, yeah. carabiners and you got two of them and you go from length to length. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And uh, when you get to the top, they will take your photo and then you cross to the other side of the bridge and come back down Wow. Uh, the other side. So, yeah. So I've it was d- amazing. I've, I loved it. And it took about three and a half hours and you do it with a guide in a yeah. small group, and if you pass out, you can't get hurt because you're harnessed and you're you're hitched to that cable, right? Right. <laughs> so you're just like a sack of potatoes dangling from that cable, and your guide will then slide you to the end of the bridge. <laughs> they actually said, because I asked them about their liability insurance, and they said they've not had an incident, and I think they've been open since 1998. Yeah, well, so, because you got yeah. that, that, that if, if you've got a guide, they make sure your harness is on right, and you, you have two carabiners, and it's um, it's a metal cable, so... It's still probably uh, one of the great thrills that you could possibly have <laughs> as a tourist, and that's a, a thing to check out while you're in Sydney. They also do a breath test, just so you know. <laughs> so, so you can't go up with no bad one. breath? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think for the, everyone else that would be good, but no, certainly that's, they check they that want... no one's been drinking or feeling like they might, you know. And you can't have anything in your pockets, isn't that right, Erica, just in case they fall off the bridge onto the traffic below? That's correct. There are only five items you can take. I can only remember what three of them are. 
And like if you're an asthmatic, like your guide will take your spray and their little fanny pack. <laughs> so what's the name of the bridge again? I've got to check this out more. What is the bridge? The Sydney Harbour Bridge. The Sydney Harbour Bridge. Hey, Erica, while you were there, did you enjoy Australia Day? Were you happy to be there for that? No, and that was my question. I have an opportunity to possibly go to uh, Melbourne for the Open in January and would be there over Australia Day. Wanted to know if there's a traditional way to celebrate or anything special. There certainly is. There's always an Indigenous ceremony, which is called Survival Day. And uh, usually there's great speeches, wonderful traditional music, food and celebration. So that's in any city. And certainly in Melbourne that'll be happening, probably in Fed Square it's called, which is very close to the Australian Open Stadium. So you can go there. Is that on the same day every year? Yes, it is, the 26th. January January. January 26th. Hey, Erica, are you a fan of uh, A Place to Call Home? Have you been watching the series? I got a subscription to Acorn TV just so I could watch that show. And, and what, <laughs> what, what do you like yes, about it? I, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's an addictive show. Uh, what do you enjoy about it? I love period pieces, first and foremost. And um, as Sid mentioned earlier, just the performances. And they, and they do cover topics that you wouldn't necessarily think they would cover straight off the bat. So, you know, a good love triangle and just... Um, the social mores of the time and reflecting on how far we may or may not have come since Mm -hmm. the 50s. Just great. Hey, Erica, thanks so much for your call. All right, thank you. Okay, and uh, good luck on your next trip to the bridge. Yeah. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marta Dusseldorp, and uh, she has the lead role, the beloved role, of Sarah Adams in A Place to Call Home. And Marta, you know, we're all thinking about Sydney here. Uh, But if you want to take a little break from Sydney, uh, what's your favorite place to travel in Australia and why? My favorite place is Tasmania. Um, It's a tiny little island down the bottom of Australia, down the bottom of the right-hand side. And my husband's from there, so um, I've been going there with him over the last 13 years. Mm. It's still got all the old sandstone buildings from the convict days. It's um, not very far. You can drive 40 minutes at the most, and you're in the most incredible seaside towns of Signet and Franklin. Historically, they're incredibly rich. They've got apples that will explode in your mouth. They are they have over 40 different types of apples. It's sort of called the Apple Isle for that reason. Mm. The food, the the people, the calmness, um, if you can imagine it calmer than Australia already is, it has its own special piece. And it's much colder down there, so it's very crisp and very alive. It has some of the most beautiful national parks, I think, in the world. And you can walk them, uh, the Cradle Mountain Walk and the Abel Tasman Walk along the coast. You can do them via companies, so you stay in huts mm-hmm. the whole way, <laughs> which is pretty nice or you can free walk it yourself. Um, but they really are world heritage walks, and um, it's just its one of the most beautiful places I think I've ever been. Mm, it sounds just enchanting. Now, mm. if, I'm, if I'm a big fan of uh, a nostalgic, old-fashioned look at Australia from the 1950s because I start getting into a place to call home, and it inspires me to go to Australia and try to find a quiet eddy from the past... Are there any places in Australia where you might feel like you're back in the 1950s? Maybe in small towns along the way, mm-hmm. um, but not really in the major cities. Um, the rocks, obviously, in Sydney, which is where the Harbour Bridge is, 
is maintained and has historical walks where you can hear the history of each building and how it was built and, again, the sandstone and the convicts. Mm. But for me, what Australia really has to offer is the nature. And often these communities that we've been talking about are like, for example, there's a place called Kuljaman, which is at Cape Levique on the west coast of Australia, right up the top. It's a, an Indigenous-run place that you can go, and it has five-star tents and then two-star huts, so it fits everyone's brief. And it takes a day to drive there, or you can fly there on a small aeroplane. And that really gives you an idea of the remoteness of Australia and how isolated and left alone it really is to the rest of the world. And for me, that's the eddy you're looking for when you come to this place. Yes. It can be... It can be a place of complete solitude, which when I go to America, I know they also have places like that. But um, in Australia, they, they seem almost like you're the only person there. Mm. <laughs> Similarly, in Tasmania, there's a place called Wineglass Bay that you can only walk into. And I remember the time me and my husband went in, there was absolutely nobody there. So we went skinny dipping in mm. the water. And I thought, I don't really, this is just so extraordinary. And... Um, and not far from a major hub where you can have a beautiful meal and some delicious wine. So um, I think you're less searching for the 1950s and more right. searching for that timeless place. That idyllic eddy. Uh, that Australia offers. So complement your offers. time in Sydney with uh, that dimension of uh, the great vastness and the peacefulness mm. and the idyllic quality of Australia. Sounds mm. nice. All right. Hey, well... <laughs> Marta Dusseldorf, you got me fantasizing about <laughs> Australia. Thanks so much for uh, an appreciation of Australia as well as an insight into your work as Sarah Adams in A Place to Call Home. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time to be a long way from home. Some journeys can take you somewhere unexpected. This place, I could call it home. Season 3 of A Place to Call Home is airing on public TV in a select number of U.S. cities. All of Marta Dusseldorf's latest TV series are also available as DVD sets and streaming video from Acorn TV. They're expecting Season 4 of A Place to Call Home to be released around the holidays. If you've ever wondered why, in the middle of October, you might not be able to find an Oktoberfest celebration where you live, consider it a sign that they're being true to how it's observed back in Bavaria. Traditionally, Oktoberfest starts in mid-September and ends in early October. That's because in Germany, mid-October starts to get a little bit cold to enjoy an outdoor festival of pretzels, sausage, and beer. Speaking of sausages, it's said there's as many as 1,500 different varieties of sausage that you can eat all across Germany, and there's lots of local specialties that are worth knowing about. As my friends Iris Andre and Matthias Unger from Berlin are about to tell us, any time of year is a good time to enjoy the best first in Germany. Iris, Maddie, welcome. Uh, thanks for having us. Maddie, I just explained sausages in kind of sweeping terms. Uh, what is it about sausages and German people? I think we eat sausage for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, any time, every time of the day, all year long. But what is it about sausages? Is it part of your heritage? Is it just tasty? Is it easy to preserve? Or why do you have so many sausages? Iris, do you know? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, first of all, because of our climate, that um, most of the northern parts of uh, Germany, we have a pretty cold climate. We have a lot of pigs 
And it was a way of also preserving food during the time when there was not refrigeration around. Uh, sausages, you could smoke them and hang them up in your barn and they would keep over the winter during and the winter, summer. Before there was refrigeration. Most sausages are based on pork. Yeah, and some people, they are hung up about expiration dates nowadays. But hey, their sausages, they're smoked. It can keep them almost forever. <laughs> they used to go on boats for a long time. So the tradition has just stayed, and um, yeah, we have a hard time living without them. Now there's a concept called Brotzeit. What is that? Traditional German people do not have really dinner in the American sense. We have very heavy lunches, and in the evening at around 6, 6.30, we would sit down and eat almost the same as we have for breakfast, oh. uh, So, which is bread, uh, with a little bit of butter or margarine, and mm -hmm. then you have your different kind of cold cuts, cheeses. Maybe you have uh, some pickles with it or some cucumbers, uh, cucumbers right. and peppers, yeah. uh, like coup de thé that you mm -hmm. cut up. And, and sausages. And you yes. even have the sausages with it. Mati, brotzeit, is, uh, is that literally time for bread? Brotzeit? Bread time. time bread for time. bread. So bread. bread is a big deal in Germany. I love a German bakery. When you're thinking of the importance of sausage, it goes with bread. Talk about uh, good bread in Germany. What do you enjoy with, uh, with your sausage? Good bread is essential. If you think about Germany, you think about dark bread, right? Mm -hmm. Rye bread, really dark bread. Why is that important for us? Because a dark bread, it stays also a week maybe. It's consistent. It's very good for your health. Yeah, uh, this dark bread really is dark. I mean, yes. it's like black bread almost. It's, yeah. it's almost, if you were uh, being attacked by somebody, you could defend yourself with a good piece of full <laughs> corn bread, I think. Full corn. Uh, full I like, corn. Oh, I love mm -hmm. that, yeah. Uh, when you're thinking about uh, this uh, broadside, time for bread, it's going to have sausages. This would change from region to region. Let's talk just a bit about cities and regions that have a famous sausage. Iris, when you think about sausages, what cities or regions come to mind? Mm, the first one that <laughs> comes to my mind, which I personally do not like so much, is the ones from Munich, the Weißwürstel, which are white sausages. White so yeah, I've seen the white sausages with the sauerkraut or the pretzel in yeah. the beer halls, and these would be typically Bavarian. Yes. So they're Weißwürstel, literally white sausages. Exactly. And uh, you have to eat them in a certain way where you have to, uh, you cannot eat the peel. Oh, you can't. It's a little bit of etiquette, uh, you know, how you get the peel off. And uh -huh. some locals, they just, they almost suck the sausage out of the peel. So you're left with the shell there, the, just the skin, and you throw that away. Yes. This is good for our travelers to know. So with a white sausage in Munich, don't suffer through no. the skin. You don't it's eat a tube. the peel. It's a tube. It's like eating toothpaste. Exactly. <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> I was just checking you. No, no, no. No. no but it's, you, it's a tube. You eat what's inside of the skin. Yes. All right. Mati, uh, I know when I go to Nuremberg, there's these lovely little sausages. They're called Nuremberger, and they're really like finger tiny. Like the little them, finger. Yes, yeah. yes. You put them in a roll, like yeah. five pieces, and they're a little spicy. You have to have sweet mustard with it. Okay, sweet now that's, mustard, a, that's yes. a sausage skill because in Germany... You know, in, in, in some countries, you, you have a very simple approach to a certain aspect of your cuisine. But in Germany, the mustard, the senf, is very important, and you have different kinds of senf. In a grocery store, what would you see for the different kinds of mustard? You have extra hot. Extra hot? Extra hot. 
You have middle hot, uh -huh. yeah, medium hot, and you have the sweet one. Okay, so then in German, the three words, or the words would be sweet would be what? Süß. And uh, a little bit hot would be? Medium. Medium. And in German, what or is Mittel. Mittel. And then medium. the hot would be called? Mittel. Scharf. 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 So there's scharf, there's yes. middle scharf, and there's sus for sweet. Very important to know. Yes. But getting back to Nuremberg, we have the Nuremberg sausage, three or four or five little sausages the size of your little finger yes. on a roll. Whenever you come to a Christmas market oh, there, I love my that. God, go. They're freshly done on the barbecue and mm. a roll. It's a tradition, and especially in Nuremberg. It's one reason I go to Nuremberg. And both of you are from Berlin. In Berlin, we have the currywurst. Oh, yes. Iris, tell us why <laughs> the Berliners love their currywurst. Um, first of all, the Berliners believe that the currywurst is theirs. Uh, they invented it across the Republic in a town called Bochum. The people believe they invented it, so it's like a little war across the Republic mm. who did it really. Mm. Uh, personally, I believe that the Berliners might be right with that because of uh, our history with the Second World War. When the British came, I think that personally, the British uh, was their liking for the curry. Okay, so that's the, the English have their Indian cuisine and so on, so they exactly. spice the sausage. So that they brought the idea of the curry to huh. the people in Berlin and that some clever woman thought, well, let's put it on sausages with ketchup. So, Matty, describe a currywurst for our listeners. So you go to this woman who sells a currywurst and she will ask you, with or without the skin, right? Mm -hmm. And you tell her, okay, with or without the skin. Then she is going to ask you a 50 questions about how spicy, how much ketchup, which kind of, with mayonnaise or not. So, but let me get this straight. You have a, maybe a paper plate because it's a fast food place in German style. You, you're going to yeah. take it out. You're going to take it to go. It's very cheap and quick and all the local workers are there. You ask for it without the skin. So you're going to get this sausage pulled out of its skin. In pieces. In pieces. Yes. And then different sauces to put on. Different sauces. You have to tell her what kind of sauce. You can have hot and spicy. Hot, mm -hmm. spicy. On mayonnaise. Mayonnaise and ketchup is called red and white. Red Rot and white. Rot und weiß. Ah, so yeah. if you want to sound like a local and they say, what would you like on it? Rot weiß. Red and white. All right. right. Matty and Iris, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of the sausage culture. Okay, you're welcome. In Deutschland. It was a pleasure, thanks. Danke. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton, assisted by Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City, ABC Radio in Sydney, and Chad Campbell for their help with this week's show. You can listen again anytime you like and search our archives. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, 
visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.